How's it going? Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is Begotten, Not Made, Consubstantial with the Father Part 2, and we're talking all about eternal generation. In the last episode, we briefly defined generation, and we surveyed the general historical consistency of the doctrine to um, kind of frame where some of the discussions we're about to go into come from, and so they're tied together in that way. So in many ways... It is difficult to clarify too much on what exactly eternal generation is uh, because there are limitations to our reflections on the divine nature of God. Um, But we're going to begin this section by explaining generation, then we'll go into the biblical data, and then we'll talk about the applications, and the applications will be a little bit unique compared to previous applications. Um, So here we land ultimately with the articulations of 381. I mentioned in the last episode that really this whole paragraph about Jesus is all about generation. Born of the Father before all ages, born is eternal generation in another um, term. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. This whole paragraph deals with Jesus being the same nature of his Father, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, born of God, light from light. That's all eternal generation. So when you step back and look at the Creed of Constantinople in 3D1 and you see this paragraph, it was not something just thrown into the confession, but it has a prominent place. So it's first worth pointing out that in terms of the historical development, the Cappadocians and Athanasius cleared up uh, that which some like Justin Martyr and Tertullian articulated that is kind of problematic. So uh, to remind you, Justin and Tertullian articulated the idea that the word or logos was brought forth in time for the works of creation and redemption. Um, But, of course, this doesn't really account for the immutability of the Son and the eternality of the divine nature. And, of course, this also puts them in a logical sequence of first, second, and thirds. And if you think about Arius and his articulation that God was outside of time and creates the Son in time and the Spirit in time, then you're really not that far away from Arianism, and especially whenever you start getting into Uh, power and subordination. And of course, it's worth stating that there's a lot of um, helpful discussions on eternal generation that come after 381 by people like Augustine. And uh, Thomas Aquinas in the West has some good um, material on it. And there's Eastern writers that have good material on it. John of Damascus is one of them, I believe. And then whenever you start getting to, um, you know, the Reformation, John Calvin, he puts a great emphasis on the fact that Jesus is God in of himself. Um, because the Sadie is linked to essence. And so there's a lot of things like that um, that do come after this. But by the time we get to Nicaea in 325 and 381, this concept of eternal generation is 
recognized by the church universal. So um, we've spoken before to the idea of the Father being the principle or the source or the cause of the Son and Spirit. I prefer to use source rather than cause. Um, Some people like Matthew Barrett prefer cause rather than source. That's just how it goes. Um, the, The Father... And every articulation, even even whenever you get to the distinction between Augustine and the East, where the West puts an emphasis on the essence of God to begin with, while the East puts an emphasis on the Father as the bound of unity within the, the triunity of God, um, regardless of which position you take, the Father is seen as the principal source, wellspring, fount. Um, that's how it's always been. And that sounds a little bit bizarre for us because we're not used to that articulation. We're used to the stress on the essence. And as, as I've observed, and as many people have critiqued, the, the Western emphasis on um, essence can almost make essence into its own person, where it's this fourth person of the Trinity who kind of binds them all together. Uh, and it does become problematic, especially whenever you realize that essence is not personal, it's impersonal. And whenever you focus on essence, it makes God impersonal. While if you focus on the Eastern articulation that the Father is the bound of unity, then you're always thinking in personal terms and you just think through the taxes, you know, the relational order that everything is um, from the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And um, so you can go into all those debates about that, but but the primary point is that the Father is seen as the principal source, and we'll talk about how that looks, especially in relation to Hebrews here in a little bit. So regardless of those debates, the Father is seen as the unbegotten, the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is spirated by the Father um, and the Son in the Western tradition. So let's talk a little bit about the groundwork The idea of the Father as the unbegotten, the Son as the begotten, or the generated, um, or the Spirit as spirated, can be called personal properties, modes of subsistence, which means existence, or eternal relations of origin. And one note before we get more into the weeds, I am purposely trying to focus on how slowly I am talking. I know that I tend to talk kind of fast, but I want to keep this one nice and slow, and so... Forgive me if it's dragging for you. Put it on 1.5 or 2x. I'm just trying to slow it down for others because this isn't really the easiest topic. So people will usually pick their favorite out of those three different terms. You can think of them as interchangeable. So personal properties, modes of subsistence, and eternal relations of origin. I prefer personal properties. Personal properties are the properties that are unique to each person. So the properties are the properties of paternity, the father, filiation, the son, and spiration, the spirit. The property of the father is that he is the unbegotten begetter and spirator. The property of the son is that he is the begotten son. And the property of the spirit is that he is the spirated spirit proceeding from the father. The three persons are all exactly identical in all things except for these personal properties. To say it another way, the personal properties, paternity, filiation, inspiration, are those things that distinguish the persons in eternity. 
So the point is that it keeps intact the unity of the Godhead, insisting on the shared divine essence, identical in all respects, and this is contrary to Arianism, but it also protects against the heresies that overemphasize oneness to the exclusion of proper distinctions. These eternal properties basically say that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father, and so on. So with this general idea in mind, we can press on by speaking to the personal property of the Son, that is, to be begotten or generated from the Father. Those terms mean the same thing. Um, So this means that the Son comes forth from the Father. He is, as Athanasius would say, the proper offspring of the Father. Now there's a sense where there is a continuity because we can think of a father-son relationship here on earth, and we understand that. The, the son and father denote something about this relationship. But we can't push too far because we can't import anthropology, the doctrine of man, onto theology proper. So whenever you think back on this and you think of eternal sonship, Jesus was always the son in eternity. Eternal sonship and eternal generation go hand in hand. So... As it has been historically stated, eternal generation stresses that from all eternity, with no beginning or end, the Father communicates the one simple, which means undivided, not composed of parts, essence, to the Son. The Son is begotten, not made, as the Creed says. And because he is begotten, he is of the same divine essence of his Father, as one being from the Father in eternity before the creation of of the world, not merely in his incarnation. Or put another way, Jesus is not a son because he was incarnate, but rather he was incarnate because he was the only begotten son of God. This is the heart of true God from true God in the Nicene Creed, because the son is consubstantial with the father, and he shares the same essence with his father. Now, I hinted at this prior But there's a difficulty with the property of the Son because of human conceptions of being begotten, right? Uh, Humans are begotten in time, but God is eternal. There was not a time when the Son was begotten in eternity. Um, And even our language is problematic because we we are bound to being stuck within the temporal. No matter what, we are going to think of things in concepts of time. Even when we think of eternality, we are bound to think of it relative to time. And so that's what we do. We place eternity as a period prior to creation, yet the idea of a period still denotes time. So it's kind of this weird paradox, but that's typically where we think. And Gregory, the theologian, makes this point very clear about this limitation to the temporal. And he ultimately reminds us that of this, this key point. Quote, when was the son begotten when the father was unbegotten? Basically, the idea was that the son always was and is. Uh, The begottenness or being born from the Father is always. And this is where we struggle. We struggle with how is someone who is begotten or born of the Father eternally born of the Father? How can one who is generated also be eternal? That's where we struggle. But that's also where the analogies of Athanasius and the Cappadocians come in handy, where there was never a time where the sun is without its light. There's never a time when um, the mind is without rationality, right? There are analogies to that. Of course, they're limited. Um, and so 
this is all to ultimately say that the son is not a creature. He is instead only unique begotten son sharing in the divine essence of the father, contradictory to Arianism and contradictory to modalism. The son is the son, not the father. And he is the son in eternity. And the father is father eternally. Here it's helpful to state that generation does not involve a multiplication or division of the divine nature. The father begets the son, yet it is in full, not in part, nor is the essence multiplied. The divine essence is still one. It's not divided nor multiplied. In addition, there is no sense in which the son is inferior as the son is eternal and equal to his father. Um, There is no time bound sequence where the son and the spirit are after the father. As we just said, there is not a time when the son S U N is prior to its light. So the father is not prior to his son S O N. The sources of time, the triune God, are not subject to time. And this creates the core phrase, light from light, which is also inspired by Hebrews. And we'll get there when we get there. So while the father is the source, there is no hierarchy. There's no time where the father is prior to the existence of the son and the spirit. And so here against Arianism and subordinationism, we recognize that authority, hierarchy, or priority are not different amongst the three persons as they are by virtue of their divine nature, one in will, because will is attributed to nature, equal in power, equal in glory, equal in honor, and so forth. So additionally, God's immutability, that is that God doesn't change, reminds us that there is no change in generation or spiration of the Son and Spirit. The Father remains unchanged, the Son remains unchanged, and the Spirit remains unchanged. And these properties are the real, eternal distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is in immutability that Athanasius would argue that the monad did not become a triad because God doesn't change, or God did not become a father, but was eternally father. In the same way, the Son, in accordance to his divine nature, has a satiety and is also immutable. The Son did not become the Son, but is eternally the Son. God is self-existent and self-sufficient, and the person's personal properties occur within God, not outside of God. And this is really the core against Arianism, because the Son is begotten within the life of the Godhead, not external to the Godhead as a creature, which is what the Arians would say. So with this, this is basically recognizing that God is eternally triune. He doesn't become triune. Furthermore, we can see that God reveals himself in history uh, and this historical work or the economy gives us insight into who God is in eternity. The incarnation and the sending of the Son into the world tells us something about God in eternity. And so when we look at the whole of Scripture and find this idea of a preexistent Son and the Spirit, we are left understanding that within the life of the Triune Godhead, there is an eternal distinction between these persons, and that is their personal properties. The Father is the Father, not the Son or the Spirit, and the Son is the Son, not the Father or the Spirit. And of course, the Spirit is the Spirit, not the Father or the Son. And how these personal properties are articulated is based off of the idea of paternity and filiation, fatherhood, sonship. And one last note, of course, is that there's been debate about whether or not there's better terms for these properties. Um, And that debate will rage on, but 
needless to say, we can sit upon the Nicene Creed and utilize the terms that the church has always used. And you can find these terms and even the Reformed Confessions, right? So let's get into the biblical warrant, the biblical warrant for eternal generation. But it's wise to remember that theology is not formed by the existence of a singular explicit proof text. Instead, it is a synthesis of biblical data on a given concept, right? Um, we don't have a single proof text for the triunity of God. Instead, we have the whole of scripture that points to the triunity of God. And so whenever we come to doctrines like eternal generation, we have to ultimately realize that we have to pull threads together and attempt to see a canvas of eternal generation clearly and understand why the church affirmed this. So we're going to pull together these threads, which makes proof texting difficult and patience necessary. And we're going to look to eternal generation of the sun and try to understand why throughout all of church history, um, it has been a, an essential Trinitarian and Christological affirmation and the ecumenical councils from Chalcedon in 451 to Nicaea 325 and 381, the so-called Athanasian Creed and everything else. So let's pull on some threads and we're going to begin with one of the most intuitive aspects of all this. Um, So like Athanasius, we can easily recognize that there are names presented in scripture, father and son, and these are correlative. Uh, God as a father means that God has a son, especially in the eternality and the immutability of God. For the son to call the father father denotes sonship. Very logical and straightforward. Um, Athanasius would then say that to be a father is to beget a child, and thus to be a son is to be begotten, right? Um, Just as well, this properly distinguishes the father from the son, eternally without confusing or mixing the persons. Athanasius will also properly point out that fathers beget children of the proper nature or being as themselves. And so the best term available for distinguishing these persons is begotten. Uh, Those who came after Athanasius would further express what has been said above in greater detail, noting that eternal sonship calls for the idea of eternal generation by necessity. And within the New Testament, this calling of God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not an empty designation, but rather the father is distinctive from the Son. Just as well, uh, many would point out the fact that Jesus speaks of being from the Father and sent from the Father, which presupposes a generation from eternity. Um, That is because he is from the Father in eternity, he is from the Father in mission or the economy. The mission of the Son in redemptive history reflects the eternal property of the Son. And you see some of these ideas in uh, texts like Galatians 4.4, where it says the that God sent his son who was born of a woman that presupposes a sonship before the birth uh, with Mary. Therefore there's an eternal property of sonship that's prior to that birth in time. Um, One can better understand this all too, if we look back at Genesis. So from the narrative of Genesis five verses one through three, we learn that God created man in his likeness, uh, which of course we know echoes Genesis one And we read that Adam fathered a son in his likeness after his own image, and he named him Seth. Uh, So there is this point of fathering and this likeness of the son to his father. Seth is like his father, Adam, and he is in the image of his father, Adam. Now, in this same verse, you see a parallel that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man. Um, And so 
there's obviously a continuity that breaks down uh, because creating is not the same thing as being fathered. There's a distinction between the creature and the creator here, but Adam is still pictured as a son of God in a sense. And Scott Swain puts it this way when he's speaking about Adam's designation as a son in relation to Genesis 5, cited in Luke 3.38. He says, while creating is not properly speaking fathering, creating, Luke seems to suggest, is a kind of analogy to fathering. He further points out that with these analogies found in scripture that Seth is the likeness of Adam and Adam is the likeness of God, but in each case, likeness means something different. Here, it means creating, and then in another instance, it means fathering. Uh, so he adds there's different senses of fathering and likeness that are determined by the ontological father-son relation in view. God's fathering Adam and the heavenly lights in James 1.17 is properly speaking an act of creation, the production of being out of nothing. God's fathering of Adam and the heavenly lights is only metaphorically speaking an act of begetting. Adam's fathering of Seth, properly speaking, is an act of fathering, a communication of nature from parent to offspring. So when we look at what scripture says about the son, Jesus Christ, such as in Hebrews 1, we find that the son shares in the father's ontological nature. He is begotten, not made, as Seth is begotten from Adam and not made. So the discontinuity is with God creating Adam. Adam communicates his nature to Seth ontologically, and the father communicates his nature ontologically to the son. He is the natural principle of the son as light naturally radiates its brightness, so to God naturally radiates his son. Um, so that's one of the, the big pictures that's going to help us look at the way that we see the use of image of the invisible God, the way we see the, radi the radiance of his glory, the way we see um, as the glory of the only unique or begotten son. That's an important aspect, that there's a clear distinction between the creator and creature so Adam is created in the image of God, and he begets a son in his own likeness, ontologically, Seth. And God, the father, begets a son ontologically, but the discontinuity is between the creature, Adam, and Jesus, the son, ontologically. And before we move on to um, Hebrews, we're going to look at wisdom in Christ. Now, we talked about wisdom literature and the personification of wisdom, Torah, Mimra, Lagos and the last episode. And that kind of forms the, the framework or the backbone of this as we're going to talk about Proverbs 8.25 and wisdom in the New Testament and Psalm 2.7 uh, whenever we get to um, Hebrews. So the usage of the Old Testament by the New Testament becomes particularly crucial for the early church on this point. And our tendency is to really focus in on a particular text and say, what does it mean in this immediate context? And then we tend to stop there. Uh, but we cannot remove books from what is called the canonical context. That is what the text means in light of the entire progressive revelation. Uh, so while it is a crucial principle to interpret scripture within its immediate context, author, location, and revelation, we must maintain the reality that scripture is a unified whole. We can't forget that. In fact, we, we don't usually whenever it comes to other systematic categories, and so we shouldn't hear. So whenever we talk about things like Genesis 1, where there's a plurality in God, let us create man in our image, we can say in that media context, the Trinitarian view likely wasn't involved, but as we get through progressive revelation, we can see, well, that plurality means something in light of the whole revelation. So that's worth something 
to keep in mind as we go through this. So let's talk about Proverbs 8.25, which speaks about the beginning of divine wisdom. And at this point, I've talked about the personified wisdom or the word or memra um, and how those understandings were not, at minimum, far-fetched for the early church to adopt, especially when the New Testament refers to Jesus as the wisdom of God. In fact, when we get to Colossians and we get to Hebrews, you find more connections with wisdom than I initially anticipated whenever I was prepping for this particular section. However, uh, there are debates about whether or not wisdom is a type for Christ or about Christ directly. This is an important point to to stress because when we're looking at Proverbs 8 in the immediate context, I think it's it's best to say that this is a type of Christ more so than Christ immediately in this point. And so you could really say that uh, perhaps this temporal picture of wisdom in Proverbs 8 is a picture of the eternal reality of Jesus as wisdom. But regardless of which position you take on this, the connection is clear. You You can't get around the fact that there's a connection whenever you look at John 1, which has a close parallel to Proverbs 8, more so than Genesis 1. We usually think of John 1 in parallel to Genesis 1, but Proverbs 8 has far more connections with John than Genesis. And this doesn't account for other Jewish wisdom literature. So let's just kind of highlight some of the claims regarding wisdom and look at Proverbs versus John's gospel. So the first claim that from the beginning wisdom was, and that's in Proverbs 3, 19 and 8, 22 through 23. And we see this in John's gospel, John 1, 1. We learn that wisdom is an agent of creation in Proverbs 8, 22 through 37. And you see that in John's gospel, John 1, 2, technically 1, 2 through 3. We learn that wisdom descends from heaven to dwell among people in Proverbs 8, 31. And you see this in John's gospel, of course, in John 3, 17. Um, We learn that Wisdom is begotten of God in Proverbs 8.25, and you see this, of course, in uh, John 1.18 in John's Gospel. We learn that wisdom is God's delight in Proverbs 8.30, but we also know that it is the Son who is God's delight, according to John 17.24, and other texts where there's a proclamation about the Son's relationship with the Father and how he loves and is pleased in the Son. Um, We learn that Wisdom leads to life in Proverbs 8.35, and we know that Jesus is the life, and we learn that in John 1.4, amongst other texts. Um, And Proverbs 8.36, we learn that there is a consequence of rejecting wisdom, and that is death. And of course, we know that from John's gospel, that to reject Jesus is to accept death in John 3.17-19. Additionally, wisdom brings truth in Proverbs 8.7, uh, and we know that Jesus brings truth in John 1.17. A last example is that wisdom cries out invitation for men to come uh, in Proverbs 8.1. And Jesus does the same in John 7.37, 18.20, and so on. So Proverbs 8.22-30, through 30, uh, in connection with Jesus as the wisdom of God, is significant. There's, there's a center of discussion that occurs in the early controversies of Nicaea because of this connection that was apparent to these individuals. Both the Arians and the Nicene Christians believe that this text spoke about Jesus. Um, and this is significant whenever we come to our contemporary interpretations, but for now we can say that there's a good cause for taking seriously this tradition that was passed down. Um, in fact, you can look at Matthew Emerson's uh, The Role of Proverbs 8 
Eternal Generation and Retrieving Eternal Generation, edited by Fred Sanders and Scott Swain. Um, so verse 22 of Proverbs uh, was used by the Aaron's to try to prove that the sun was created. As the text, within the Greek translation of the Old Testament, said, The Lord created me at the beginning of his works. Um, the defenders of Nicaea, they focus upon this text quite a bit because of that. Um, and Athanasius, Athanasius wrote a ton on Proverbs. But the response to this charge was, um, in light of the whole scripture, this cannot mean that the sun was a creature brought into existence. And so for them, verse 22 spoke of the sun's being begotten in time in the form of man, basically the incarnation. Um, and additionally for them, verse 25 spoke clearly about eternal generation. Now, within our context, we actually have an easier time than Athanasius and the Cappadocians because the word that was used for created in the Greek actually in the Hebrew has an idea of bringing forth or possessing rather than creating. Um, if we read it within our ESV text, um, it says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Um, Bruce Waltke points out that this inspired wisdom of Solomon comes out of God's essential being and is a revelation that is organically connected to the essence of God, unlike creation. So thus, verse 22 speaks of the Lord, Yahweh, possessing his wisdom at the beginning of his work. Um, this wisdom is described as being of old. And in verse 25, you read, before the mounds had been shaped and before the hills, I was brought forth in the ESV. Or the NET says, I was born. Or in the King James says, I was begotten. With these texts together, we find that wisdom was essential to God's essence, possessed by God, and was begotten before creation. In verse 27, we read, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, there I was beside him, like a master workman. Uh, Matthew Barrett argues that verse 22 further speaks of wisdom's relation to the rest of creation, similar to Paul's use of firstborn as preeminent over creation, while verse 25 speaks of wisdom's eternal origin from the Lord. And that's in his book, Simply Trinity. As stated above, whether or not wisdom is a type for Christ or about Christ directly, a connection is clearly made when we consider this in light of John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, leading us to see this thread that the early church and the, even the Arians recognized um, is something worth holding on to, that there is a connection clearly being made about John's logos and the wisdom of God. And of course, Paul calls Jesus wisdom in 1 Corinthians, and we see other allusions to that connection elsewhere. Uh, that's going to wrap up this particular episode. We'll do a part three. We'll get into Hebrews. We'll talk about Colossians. And then we'll talk about the big monogamous controversy. And we'll do all that in the next episode. And then we'll move on to the next clause. And so I hope that this was helpful in some shape or form in terms of grasping eternal generation. And hopefully you'll get a little bit more of a recognition or feel for why the early church held to this doctrine whenever we talk about Hebrews and Colossians in particular. So God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.